Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's program, the most energetic gamma ray burst ever detected. And we have news from the National Press Club and from the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference in outline of NASA's Lunar Science Plans. And we mark the 55th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's death. And on Mars, the Ingenuity helicopter is making such good progress that plans are underway to send two, yes, two more helicopters. So let's start out with Space Show News. This morning it was announced that the strongest gamma-ray burst had been detected in October last year. Numerous scientific papers describing the event have been published today. In introducing the papers, Eric Burns of Louisiana State University wrote this. In 1963, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States signed the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, which prohibited the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, underwater, and in space. To monitor compliance the United States launched the Vela series of satellites. In 1967, on July 2, Vela 3 and 4 detected a short flash of gamma rays from the universe, the first detection of a gamma ray burst by humanity. The existence of gamma-ray bursts was announced in 1973. These transients are now known to last from approximately 0.01 to 10,000 seconds and are the most luminous events since the Big Bang. In 1972, two probes were selected to go on a grand tour of our solar system. Having launched in 1977, Voyager 1 is now more than 30 billion kilometers from Earth. During its journey scientists have identified more than 10,000 gamma-ray bursts. In 2022, on October 8, Voyager 1 registered significant counts in its particle detectors for a brief time. This was the first detection of what turned out to be the brightest gamma-ray burst ever observed. As the gamma-ray burst swept through our solar system it was detected by instruments on more than a dozen satellites built for astrophysics, planetary science, and solar observations. Nineteen hours after arrival at Voyager 1, the burst arrived at Earth. The first announcement of this was sent by the gamma-ray burst monitor on the Fermi satellite. However, no location or classification of the event was sent due to real-time data issues. An hour later the Neil Gerald Swift Observatory satellite triggered on a bright transient near the plane of the Milky Way and reported it as an unusual galactic transient. The automated analysis of the Fermi Large Area Telescope in response to the Swift report found a significant source of high-energy photons. This led to the first consideration that the Fermi gamma-ray burst monitor and Swift detections may be the same event which was confirmed by triangulation of the gamma-ray burst monitor signal by the interplanetary network to the same source position identified by SWIFT. The initial reports by the GBM and CONUS wind teams that this was the brightest gamma-ray burst in their samples sent a clarion call to humanity's astronomical resources. 
This burst is called GRB 221009A bursts this bright in the prompt phase are predicted to arrive at Earth roughly every 10,000 years, suggesting this is the brightest burst since human civilization began. Today, the Astrophysical Journal Letters, and a partner issue in Astronomy and Astrophysics, publish papers that serve as the main reports on the observations of this spectacular event and on additional science that it enabled. Observations will continue for years to come. David Alexander Kahn is an author on several papers on this burst. He is known for having an encyclopedic knowledge of gamma-ray bursts and an incredible work ethic. He is also known for his warm heart and the care he took to engage and mentor junior members of the field. Alex passed away only a few weeks before the release of the first observational results on GRB 221009A shortly before. He helped write an acknowledgement in one of these papers thanking the universe for timing this burst to arrive at Earth after the invention of GRB monitors but during our active research careers. In private discussions between Alex and the writer, they were really thanking the universe for having this occur during their lifetimes. Alex devoted his work life to the study of these cosmic explosions. Thus, it is only right that we dedicate this focus issue to him. It is some solace that when the brightness records set by GRB 221009A are finally broken, perhaps in several millennia, these papers may be dug out of some ancient archive, and his contributions to the field and our great regard for him will be known even then. Until then, he will be missed by friends, family, and colleagues worldwide. The words of Louisiana State University's Eric Burns. Now, many of the satellites involved in this discovery were operated by NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. So the Goddard Space Flight Center's Francis Reddy wrote this media release issued this afternoon. On October 9th last year, a pulse of intense radiation swept through the solar system so exceptional that astronomers quickly dubbed it the boat, the brightest of all time. The source was a gamma-ray burst, GRB, the most powerful class of explosions in the universe. The burst triggered detectors on numerous spacecraft, and observatories around the globe followed up. After combing through all of this data, astronomers can now characterize just how bright it was and better understand its scientific impact. GRB 221009A was likely the brightest burst at X-ray and gamma-ray energies to occur since human civilization began said Eric Burns, an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. He led an analysis of some 7,000 GRBs, mostly detected by NASA's Fermi Gamma-ray Space Telescope and the Russian CONUS instrument on NASA's wind spacecraft, to establish how frequently events this bright may occur. Their answer, once in every 10,000 years. The burst was so bright it effectively blinded most gamma-ray instruments in space, which means they could not directly record the real intensity of the emission. U.S. scientists were able to reconstruct this information from the Fermi data. They then compared the results with those from the Russian team working on CONUS data and Chinese teams analyzing observations from the GECAMC detector on their SATECH-01 satellite and instruments on their InSight HXMT observatory. Together, they prove the burst was 70 times brighter than any yet seen. 
The signal from GRB-221009A had been traveling for about 1.9 billion years before it reached Earth, making it among the closest known, long, gamma-ray bursts, whose initial, or prompt, emission lasts more than two seconds. Astronomers think these bursts represent the birth cries of black holes formed when the cores of massive stars collapse under their own weight. As it quickly ingests the surrounding matter, the black hole blasts out jets in opposite directions containing particles accelerated to near the speed of light. These jets pierce through the star, emitting X-rays and gamma rays as they stream into space. With this type of gamma-ray burst, astronomers expect to find a brightening supernova a few weeks later, but so far it has proven elusive. One reason is that the gamma-ray burst appeared in a part of the sky that's just a few degrees above the plane of our own galaxy, where thick dust clouds can greatly dim incoming light. We cannot say conclusively that there is a supernova, which is surprising given the burst's brightness, said Andrew Levan, a professor of astrophysics at Radboud University in Nijmegen, Netherlands. Since dust clouds become more transparent at infrared wavelengths, Levan led near and mid-infrared observations using NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, its first use for this kind of study, as well as the Hubble Space Telescope to spot the supernova. If it's there, it's very faint. We plan to keep looking, he added, but it's possible the entire star collapsed straight into the black hole instead of exploding. Additional Webb and Hubble observations are planned over the next few months. As the jets continue to expand into material surrounding the doomed star, they produce a multi-wavelength afterglow that gradually fades away. Being so close and so bright, this burst offered us an unprecedented opportunity to gather observations of the afterglow across the electromagnetic spectrum and to test how well our models reflect what's really happening in gamma-ray burst jets, said Kate Alexander, an assistant professor in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Arizona in Tucson. 25 years of afterglow models that have worked very well cannot completely explain this jet, she said. In particular, we found a new radio component we don't fully understand. This may indicate additional structure within the jet or suggest the need to revise our models of how GRB jets interact with their surroundings. The jets themselves were not unusually powerful, but they were exceptionally narrow, much like the jet setting of a garden hose, and one was pointed directly at us, Alexander explained. The closer to head on we view a jet, the brighter it appears. Although the afterglow was unexpectedly dim at radio energies, it's likely that GRB-221009A will remain detectable for years, providing a novel opportunity to track the full life cycle of a powerful jet. The burst also enabled astronomers to probe distant dust clouds in our own galaxy. As the prompt X-rays traveled toward us, some of them reflected off of dust layers, creating extended, light echoes, of the initial blast in the form of X-ray rings expanding from the burst's location. The X-ray telescope on NASA's Neil Gerald Swift Observatory discovered the presence of a series of echo. Detailed follow-up by the European Space Agency's XMM-Newton Telescope, together with Swift data, revealed these extraordinary rings were produced by 21 distinct dust clouds. How dust clouds scatter X-rays depends on their distances, the sizes of the dust grains, and the X-ray energies, explained Sergio Campana, research director at Brera Observatory and the National Institute for Astrophysics in Marate, Italy. We were able to use the rings to reconstruct part of the burst's prompt X-ray emission and to determine where in our galaxy the dust clouds are located.
GRB221009A is only the seventh gamma-ray burst to display X-ray rings, and it triples the number previously seen around 1. The echoes came from dust located between 761,000 light-years away. The most distant echoes, clear on the other side of our Milky Way galaxy, were also 4,600 light-years above the galaxy's central plane, where the solar system resides. Lastly, the burst offers an opportunity to explore a big cosmic question. We think of black holes as all-consuming things, but do they also return power back to the universe? Asked Michaela Negro, an astrophysicist at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt. Her team was able to probe the dust rings with NASA's imaging X-ray polarimetry explorer to glimpse how the prompt emission was organized, which can give insights into how the jets form. In addition, a small degree of polarization observed in the afterglow phase confirms that we viewed the jet almost directly head-on. Together with similar measurements now being studied by a team using data from ESA's Integral Observatory, Scientists say it may be possible to prove that the boat's jets were powered by tapping into the energy of a magnetic field amplified by the black hole spin. Predictions based on such models have already successfully explained other aspects of this burst. And that report was written by the Goddard Space Flight Center's Francis Reddy and released this afternoon. Southern FM Last week... The Federal Science Minister spoke at the National Press Club in Canberra. One of the questions was about space, which is one of Ed Husick's areas of responsibility. Now, the background to this uh, question is that the Morrison government made some grants in the area of space. And uh, there seems to be some concern amongst the space industry that the monies for those grants have not yet been released. Well, here is the question and Husek's reply. Next question is from Talia Roy. Uh, Talia Roy at the ABC. Minister, will your government commit to a promise made by the previous government for their strategic space update? And if not, is the space sector treading water, I guess, without any government direction at the moment? Well, I think uh, a number of things. I mean, I don't necessarily, just because a former government, if you can appreciate, has decided to do something, doesn't mean that I automatically or us as a government automatically uh, takes that on board. In some cases, we'll make those assessments Uh, uh, case by case. In terms of space, there will be a huge opportunity. We, um, for instance, with the National Reconstruction Fund, I've seen uh, in particular our political opponents who haven't wanted to engage uh, constructively around the National Reconstruction Fund make a whole series of claims about what will or won't be supported. I took on board, for example, the uh, Senate inquiry into the National Reconstruction Fund late uh, recently that talked about the value of us opening up the fund Uh, for investment in space, and I can assure you that the National Reconstruction Fund will uh, be open to support investment in space activity, uh, particularly through the priority area of enabling capabilities, but could easily go into a lot of other uh, areas uh, as well. So we are um, uh, are also honoured previous decisions uh, that have been made, and we've announced some of those uh, from former programs of uh, the previous administration. Um, I have taken a view. I'm not going to politicise the decision-making around some of the decisions that were made 
in grants by previous uh, coalition administrations. It's why, for example, we tested and then approved modern manufacturing initiative uh, grants uh, because my view is business industry needs certainty to develop momentum. So we've done the responsible rather than the political uh, take or partisan take that we confronted when we went out of office and we had an incoming coalition government. So we do think that there are opportunities for the space sector. I don't necessarily uh, think, and it certainly hasn't been something that um, I've rushed to uh, adhere to or honour a previous government's commitment on the particular review that you referenced in the question, but we definitely do see that either through the grants or through the NRF um, architecture that we've set in place that there will be room for support for the sector. On Thursday last week, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and Deputy Administrator Pam Melroy were in Canberra and spoke to the National Press Club. He spoke about the crewing of the Artemis II lunar orbiting mission. Within a week, we are going to announce the first crew to go to the moon. And it's instructive who this crew will be that Pam, our deputy administrator and astronaut commander, as she has been, uh, Pam and I are going to make the announcement down in Houston of the crew. And it will have three Americans and one Canadian. And that's significant because we go to the moon this time as an international mission. Half a century ago, we went as the US government. And that announcement will be made at 1 a.m. on Tuesday morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time. Now I say standard because daylight time ends at 3 a.m. this Sunday morning. So don't forget to wind your clocks and watches back one hour. Now, while speaking at the press club, Administrator Nelson made this offer. The challenges that we see today by others who are competitors in the Indo-Pacific region. And thus, uh, all the more reason that I would like to see an Australian train and fly with us. It's all the more important. And this week, if I overheard a comment correctly, dual British-Australian national Catherine Benel-Pegg leaves for Germany to join the European Space Agency's astronaut training program. This is the Space Show. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Let's take a trip to the moon Come on, let's go for the moon I want to go to the moon Let's take a trip to the moon Two weeks ago, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference was being held in Texas. Joel Kearns is the Deputy Associate Administrator in the Exploration Division of NASA Headquarters, and he spoke about the achievements that have been made last year and then of plans for this year and going on further from that. 
Um, I thought 2022 was a really outstanding year for exploration science of the moon because a lot of things started that you're going to see shape things for the years uh, coming up. So, for example, KPLO uh, Denori um, launched and went into lunar orbit and then included um, shadow cam to help shed light and images from uh, PSRs. Um, NASA's Space Technician Directorate, um, in partnership with industry, launched the Capstone COM Position Navigation and Timing small set that's going to be the same near rectilinear halo orbit that Gateway will go into. And right now it's working with LRO. Um, the um, iSpace's Hakuta R Mission 1 um, launched, and it's due to land on the lunar surface this spring, probably in April. And on that same launch, a lunar flashlight um, launched. But I'm going to save two things for the end. The first, of course, was the flight test of Artemis 1, which tested uh, many uh, systems like Orion and the Space Launch System rocket, which is going to enable astronaut explorer um, um, investigation science on the South Pole of the Moon. And also, uh, we received a uh, planetary science and astrobiology decadal survey, Origins, uh, Worlds, and Life, in uh, 2022, which is going to which provides some very specific recommendations on lunar discovery and exploration, as well as the generation and integration of science objectives and requirements into the Artemis effort. All of that is really going to affect things in the years um, coming up. In addition, I'll mention is that NASA spent quite a bit of time. And many of you provided input to NASA on this to draft a set of objectives for um, Moon and Mars, which we often call Moon to Mars, um, activities um, particularly related to human spaceflight for the years coming up uh, from now all the way out to um, the first uh, landing by humans on Mars. And you're going to see uh, in this year coming up how that is um, being used to look at midterm and the outterm what type of systems and functions NASA will have to enable those objectives. But let me say a few things about lunar discovery and exploration uh, for coming uh, coming up that I put on the chart. Um, one, you know, lunar trailblazer is making um, great progress. It will launch uh, with um, the Intuitive Machine's second Eclipse mission um, coming up at the end of this year. Um, the Viper um, rover, which as Lori pointed out last year, was rescheduled from a landing in late 23 to late 24, has gone through its systems integration review and is starting assembly. Uh, but probably I would think, think that the thing that will be very visible to people in the community is that the first two CLIPS landings are scheduled by those companies to take place this summer. The Astrobotic Technologies in Pittsburgh, along with the United Launch Alliance, has announced that their target launch date for their program mission one's first clips delivery is in May. Uh, that will also be on the first um, launch of the new uh, Vulcan Center United Launch Alliance uh, rocket. And Intuitive Machines has announced that their first clips delivery um, to Malapert A um, using their Nova C vehicle will be this June. So it followed that up, as I mentioned, their second um, Intuitive Machines landing is targeted for the end of this year. And that is the mission that Lunar Trailblazer worldwide share with um, to go to the moon. Um, looking at um, activities um, related to preparing for um, getting uh, having science accomplished by human explorers, uh, you probably know that the Artemis III Science Geology team call is out, and step two proposals are due at the end of April. 
Um, also come upcoming will be the um, draft uh, solicitation for the Artemis deployed instrument call that'll be coming out soon. That's listed on the bottom um, of the chart. And also based on the planetary science and astrobiology decadal survey, effort is being put into um, defining and refining missions concepts and soon going out to the community to refine and define science objectives and requirements for the Endurance A mission uh, to bring samples back from South Paul Aiken Basin. And I also listed here that um, the PRISM-3 Step 2 proposals were in, and the selections will be made this summer, and you're probably aware in response to advice that we were given again from the Decadal Survey by the Planetary Advisory Committee and the League, um, we structured PRISM-3 um, so that the proposer is proposing the landing site in addition to the investigation, the instrument suite, which is new, and uh, we think will probably uh, lead to um, even higher value investigations than we've seen in the earlier uh, solicitations. We've had um, eight um, CLIPS um, landings on contract. We're getting ready very soon to announce uh, the ninth one. You'll notice in this chart, we list one of the landings uh, outlined in yellow, which is the one that Maston Space Systems was going to do for us. Maston, as you all know, went into Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and because of that, we uh, strongly believe they won't be able to deliver on their CLIPS delivery. It's the Department of Justice that deals with um, companies that go into Chapter 11, and um, Maston's estate and the Department of Justice are very close to resolving um, Maston's uh, forward uh, position and whether any buyers or additional buyers are coming forward who might, for example, offer to conduct Maston's um, previously awarded CLIPS landings. We don't believe there will be any offers like that. And we believe this will probably be settled this month or next month, at which point you won't see the Maston landing, which was called Taskwater 19C on our uh, moon map manifest uh, anymore. Um, I want to point out that we've heard of the community um, over the past year really asked for an integrated lunar science strategy, which looks at the um, recommendations from the recent decadal survey, as well as the opportunities afforded by human exploration systems and robotic systems to outline uh, what the different strategies are for accomplishing the strategic research topics and the major scientific questions in the decadal survey. Planetary Science Division and SCO are continuing to build that strategy so it can be published for community comments and review. And um, I also want to point out um, here that there's a couple of very specific things we're looking at along with that strategy in the near term. One is to take a look at a community study for what the advantages would be of landing the human systems with the astronaut explorers at locations on the moon other than just the South Pole. Also, um, the detailed refinement by the community input for the Endurance A, uh, science objectives, requirements, and mission. And also, I think you'll hear about in the League Town Hall work that's being done to look at a one uh, architecture of a successor, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And um, there's also a study um, coming up, a joint League and um, XMAG study on Artemis samples. Now, I hope this gives you an idea why I think 2023 is going to be an even bigger and more exciting year uh, for lunar science and exploration than 2022 was. And 2022 uh, really set the foundation for what you're going to see in the future. So I think you're going to think it's a really exciting year. Joel Kearns, the Deputy Associate Administrator in the Exploration Division of NASA Headquarters, speaking on March the 14th. 
One of the questions that he was asked after that talk was about Maston, which, as you heard there, went into uh, bankruptcy. Here is how that question and answer went. Hi, I'm Alicia Jyoti, UCLA. I have a question about the Maston um, mission, the mm-hmm. CLIPS-19C. Um, what will happen to the instruments that were supposed to be on that lander, and is there a plan in case this happens again with another CLIPS lander? What will happen to the instruments on Maston 19C once the, the legal situation is resolved yeah. is they'll be remanifested for a future delivery mission to the moon. It might be a CLIPS landing. It might be to put those instruments on future international landings. It could be to fly them to the moon as part of human, uh, human landing system missions for Artemis. We've looked at several different options for that. And based on how we resolve this with, um, with how the Department of Justice is also with the company, um, those investigators will be notified of what the options are and which ones they'll likely be targeted to. Now, your question about what happens if this happens again, in effect, we'll react to it. If, if it were to happen again, we don't foresee it anything right now that would say it would happen again. But it's part of the experiment of what we're doing with commercial payload um, landing systems. I mean, the, we're partnering with companies. It's really difficult to uh, and challenging to land on the moon. Many of these companies just through, as we all did, went through years of dealing with COVID-19. Um, but I will tell you that I personally believe that our other um, landing um, missions are very, very strong. Now, one of the things that puzzled me about that conversation was a note that I've seen on the internet that Maston Space Systems was acquired by Astrobotic in September of last year. So I'm a little bit puzzled by that. Fifty-five years ago, listeners to Radio Moscow were shocked to hear this. You've been listening to news, comment, and music. A daily happening program in the studios of Radio Moscow. This is Moscow. Here is the news, read by Sergei Williams. First, the headlines. Soviet leaders have sent messages of condolence to the families of Ali Gagarin and Vladimir Sedyokin. They were killed in an air tragedy on Wednesday. The messages are found by Leonid Brezhnev, General Secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, President Fadgorny, Premier Kuchidin, and are addressed to the parents and the wife of Spaceman Number One, Gagarin, and to the mother and the wife and engineer Colonel Vladimir Sedyokin. The Soviet leaders say that the memory of the lives and the deeds of the heroes will be an inspiring example for the future generations. The commission set up by the government to ascertain the cause of the accident has published the details report. It says that on Wednesday afternoon, Yuri Bogarin and his assistant, test pilot first class, Vladimir Kenyogin, took off in a two-seat jet training plane from an airfield near Moscow to finish up piloting techniques. On completing the training flight, the plane crashed in Vladimir region when returning to its airfield. More crimes were killed The cause is being investigated on the top by the commission, which is headed by a leading aviation expert. Tomorrow, people in this country will be paying the last tribute to the world's first man in space, Cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. The urn with the ashes of Colonel Gagarin and Colonel Sanyomin will be placed for the last time at the Moscow Central Army Center. The biggest party in the government 
have described Hillary Jones' life as a fine example of thoughtful patriotism and heroism. An obituary appearing in today's evening papers is signed by Soviet Party government and military leaders, prominent politics and public figures, and fellow cosmonauts. It notes Yuri Gagarin's great capacity for work, and contributed to the success of his space science on April 12, 1961, when he orbited the globe. The flight marked a splendid achievement of science and engineering. Following this flight, Yuri Gagarin took an active part in the cosmonaut training program and in the guidance and subsequent manned flights in space. All who knew Colonel Gagarin, says the obituary, will always remember him as a wonderful person. Colonel Gagarin and Colonel Sedyogin will be buried by the Kremlin wall in Moscow's Red Queen. And the debate about exactly what happened, what caused the crash, is still ongoing. There are quite a few theories out there, including the official one from the Soviet investigation. 88.3 Southern FM This is The Space Show with Andrew Rennie. Sometimes you have to eat humble pie and admit you were wrong. When I watched films of the test flights of the spindly helicopter being built to fly on Mars, I thought that it would take off, capsize and crash. How wrong I was. The Ingenuity helicopter made its first flight on 2021, April the 19th. It has now made 48 flights, flown almost 11 kilometres and logged over 84 minutes in the air. On the way, it has taken thousands of photographs of the terrain below it. Travis Brown is Chief Engineer for the Ingenuity Mars Helicopter at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. Late last week, he wrote this update on the status of the helicopter and how it is teamed with the Mars rover Perseverance that delivered it to Mars. Now, Perseverance had landed on the floor of a large crater called Jezero, adjacent to an ancient river delta. Having explored the floor of Jezero, Perseverance is now climbing to the top of the delta deposit, following a valley. This is what Travis wrote. The Perseverance rover spent the first two Earth years of its mission on Mars driving and sampling within Jezero Crater. As anticipated, Jezero was found to be rich with interesting geological features, and the rover used 21 of its precious 43 sample tubes in the region. The rover wrapped up this science campaign by dropping 10 of these samples in a backup depot area for retrieval by a future mission. With this important work out of the way, the rover's science team eagerly turned its attention to the prospect of new and exciting discoveries in the unexplored area on the delta top. To reach these areas as quickly as possible, the scientists planned an aggressive driving campaign up the river delta. The first stop in this race up the delta would be the Tenby region, which is home to some of the most geologically interesting outcrops of the delta. This fresh terrain represented a golden opportunity for Ingenuity to prove its worth to the rover's science mission. Providing the rover team with reconnaissance images just a few days before the rover reaches a site gives scientists significantly more time to determine their exploration priorities, and gives rover planners advanced notice of any unexpected terrain. 
With the fading of Martian winter, Ingenuity now had enough power to fly hundreds of meters ahead of the rover with each flight and deliver on the promise of being a real science scout. There were just a few complications. First, unlike the relatively flat and unobstructed crater floor, the canyon-like river delta presented some serious communication challenges between the rover and the helicopter, meaning that the helicopter could never hope to get more than a few hundred meters ahead of the rover. This effectively nullified any speed advantage Ingenuity had over the rover. Second, unlike the Jezero crater floor, the rover would not be loitering in any spot for more than a few souls, meaning that if the helicopter ever fell behind, there would be precious little time to catch up before falling out of communications range. Third, the helicopter is required to maintain a wide keep-out zone around the rover during flight. Normally this isn't a problem but in the narrow channels of the river delta, it effectively means that ingenuity doesn't have enough space to pass the rover if it ever falls behind. The end result of these constraints was to put the helicopter in the precarious mode of making short but frequent flights time to stay just ahead of the rover as it drove. The race up the delta began cautiously at first, with a scouting flight over an outcrop called Rocky Top on Sol 689. This was Flight 41. This was needed because one of the most critical things that ingenuity, and to a lesser extent perseverance, needs for planning is a good understanding of the terrain. This understanding comes primarily from expert planetary geologists who correlate high-rise satellite imagery with the terrain observed on the ground. There was some concern that the terrain in the river delta was so unlike that seen in the flat crater floor, that it might invalidate these correlation models. After imagery from Flight 41 showed that we could still trust our terrain understanding to find landing sites, we had everything we needed to start flying. The race began in earnest with Flight 42 on Sol 697, with the helicopter flying past Rocky Top and landing near Jenkins Gap. Out of the gate, it became apparent just how hard this process was going to be. Even the modest 240 meters distance covered by Flight 42 had taken us out of communications range. Attempts to bring back useful science images from the flight resulted in nothing but a few garbled packets. Just enough show us the helicopter was still alive. It took another four souls before the rover was close enough to restore communications and get any useful data back to the rover. By that time, the rover was practically on top of the helicopter and another urgent flight was needed. Unfortunately, the flight data also showed a curious and potentially dangerous issue with the landing hazard mitigation system, which had been used successfully since Flight 39 on January 11th this year. The team worked around the clock to understand the issue, giving the all clear with just enough time to fly before being overtaken on Sol 708. This game of cat and mouse repeated itself several more times over the next few flights, with the helicopter operations team eventually setting a new record for flight frequency. While the helicopter team typically hopes to fly as often as once a week, we ultimately completed four flights, numbers 42 to 46, in the space of just nine days. As promised, the team has also started pushing the flight envelope of our resilient rotorcraft. Starting with flight 43, we changed the standard flight altitude from 10 meters to 12 meters in preparation for higher flight speeds. We then proceeded to set a new flight speed record of 6 meters per second during flight 45, 
with plans to increase it further over upcoming flights. These accomplishments are a real testament to the dedication of our hardworking guidance, navigation, and control team. Taken together, these incredible efforts allowed the helicopter to stay ahead of the rover all the way up the delta, arriving at Abercastle while holding a respectable two-saw lead on Perseverance. Abercastle is within sight of Tenby. A number of issues, such as communications failures, anomalies with the rover, and a recurrence of a known helicopter camera issue, have since conspired to prevent us from getting advanced reconnaissance of Tenby, but we're looking forward to scouting other nearby science targets while the rover is occupied over the next few souls. This was just the opening chapter of what has the potential to be an epic kilometers-long race on the Red Planet. The words of Ingenuity's team member, Travis. And, yes, <laughs> it's quite fascinating to see where it is going and where it has been. And, yes, one must eat humble pie. I was wrong. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference was held this month in Texas. One of the information sessions discussed the plans to bring the samples of Mars collected by the Perseverance rover to Earth for analysis. The plan had been to use a fetch rover to pick up the sample capsules and bring them to the return lander. Now the plan has been changed to use two, yes, two helicopters based on the Ingenuity design. Jeff Gambling is the director of the Mars Sample Return Program at NASA headquarters and he described the new plan to the conference. I'm sure you all remember that at one point we were looking at the possibility of needing two landers, one to land the Mars Ascent vehicle and another to land the sample fetch rover. About a little less than a year ago, we made the decision to go with a one-lander architecture. We descoped the sample retrieval rover, and instead we, we are flying two helicopters on the, uh, the one lander, and that those would be how we would go and get samples that are cached on the surface. So let's talk a little bit more about the helicopters. So uh, I, I think you've all been following the successful flights of Ingenuity on, on Perseverance. We're taking that design and we're augmenting it to, to serve the purpose that we need. The main augmentations are adding a, a gripper to be able to carry it, pick up a tube and carry it, and a ground mobility or, or wheels so that we can land next to the tube and then drive over it so that we're in the position to, to grab it and then fly it back to the, our lander. We've been doing testing in the in the chamber. Basically, those augmentations bring mass mass growth, and we've been doing uh, testing of an engineering model of ingenuity in the in a chamber, simulating the, the pressure on the surface of Mars uh, to validate what we've got to do to, uh, to make sure we've got both lift and controllability. So uh, we're making good progress there. Again, though, that was a kind of a late addition, so we're trying to catch up with the, where we're at with the helicopter development, but we're making good progress. So that's uh, quite an ambitious program to bring those samples back from Mars. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie, and hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday at 7 o'clock.